We all need partners, fellow laborers in the work we're doing, hands put to the plow alongside our own calloused fingers. Because you really can't do it alone. Not if it is something of consequence. But what happens when the partnership you've relied upon ends? This is a story about partnership that persists, even when we may not perceive it. It's a story about presence and absence, the seen and the unseen, about blindness and vision, and what's waiting for you when you move from one to the other. I'm Justin Gerhardt. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. Elijah and Elisha, Israel's two premier prophets, walked together across the dusty soil just north of the Dead Sea. There's an easy air of familiarity between them, but it's charged, too, with the tension of something understood but yet unspoken. One of the men's faces bears marks of grief, preliminary grief, the kind of grief that precedes loss. The other's face betrays feelings of anticipation. Elijah moves quickly, but Elisha keeps pace with his mentor until the end. Suddenly, the dust at their feet rises, swirling into the air. Grass and trees genuflect as wind seems to blow from every point on the compass. Sparrows and dragonflies tumble around the pair of prophets, flung this way and that. Elisha squints, shielding his eyes with his forearm, instinctively looking toward the heavens. When he does, he sees the sun moving, coming straight toward him. No, it's not the sun. It's fire. And it's not coming toward him. It's coming toward Elijah. A storm of color invades the sky, undulating oranges and blues and reds and yellows. It's as if the atmosphere itself has caught fire. Elisha glances at his mentor, no doubt, and what does he see? Elijah's eyes wide, face pointed toward the blaze, hands outstretched, perhaps? Or maybe his body prone, bowed low before the unmistakable presence of Yahweh. Soon, Elisha realizes the dancing flames are not just flames. They lick the curves and sharp edges of a chariot. Or better, the licking flames are the curves and sharp edges of a chariot. And a horse. No, horses. Brilliant, fiery stallions stomping and snorting and glowing, impossibly alive. Harnessed to the chariot, their scarlet eyes ablaze with purpose as they pull the vehicle between the two prophets. 
Elisha's skin feels as though it will blister, a full-fledged whirlwind now blasting heat from the scorching war machine in all directions, the flames bent by the gale bowing alongside the date palms and fig trees to an invisible king. And then Elisha watches his teacher and partner climb inside the burning chariot like a lamb climbing onto an altar of its own volition, wrapping itself in a blanket of sacrificial flame. With Elijah inside, the chariot disembarks, the horses galloping on air into the distance. Elisha, with tears in his eyes like a little boy, screams into the wind, My father! My father! The chariots and the horsemen of Israel! Elijah led a war against the wayward Jews' idolatry and disobedience. He was the chariots and horsemen of Yahweh's people, fighting for them at every turn, standing against the forces of evil and chaos, staving off the enemy. And now those chariots are gone, lost to the realm of the unseen. The wind calms, but in its final gusts, a large piece of fabric flutters to the ground and comes to a rest at Elisha's feet. A cloak, Elijah's mantle, the symbol of his leadership among the prophets of Yahweh. Elisha picks it up. Years pass, two, maybe three. King Jehoram and Israel are at war with Aram, their neighbor to the northeast. This perpetual conflict, a sad consequence of Israel's continued dishonoring of their covenant with Yahweh. Soon, this war will plunge Israel into unspeakable suffering. Skirmishes take life after life on both sides. Yahweh mourns as Israelites and Arameans fall in battle, as the swords of people he created drip with the blood of people he created. One day, Hazael, the king of Aram, decides that what he needs is an edge. Attacks in the open are, are too costly, too risky. They need to ambush the Israelites. He sends scouts to search for possible locations, spots where a number of unsuspecting soldiers could be trapped by a slim force of well-hidden Arameans. Finally, they find it, the perfect spot for an ambush. They'll trap the Hebrews like rabbits and then slaughter them like lambs. King Haziel sends a detachment of troops who then lie in wait. It won't be long. They know, thanks to recent intelligence, that Jehoram's soldiers pass through here all the time. But then, nothing. Days pass, not a single rabbit, no lambs to slaughter. Perhaps their intelligence was off, King Haziel thinks. But their intelligence isn't the problem. Israel's is. As soon as the Aramean troops gathered for the ambush, Yahweh spoke to his prophet Elisha, told him the entire plan, warned him to warn King Jehoram. He did, and the Israelites changed their troop movements accordingly. 
and so the ambush is ambushed. Unaware of Israel's secret weapon, Hazael tries again, sets up a sneak attack at a river ford or a narrow pass or a road that travels through a thick forest, but the attack is stymied. Not a single Israelite shows up, almost like they know. This happens again and again. The king of Aram is furious. Clearly, there must be a leak. Incensed, he gathers his officers and demands the truth. Tell me, who is leaking information to the king of Israel? No one steps forward. Who is the spy in our ranks? In the uncomfortable silence, one officer dares to speak up. No, my master, dear king, it is not any of us. It's Elisha, the prophet in Israel. How does this officer know? Does he have a spy in Israel's camp? Has he just received this information himself? Or is he giving voice to what's perhaps an opinion shared by several of Hazael's men? It must be the prophet, the storied messenger of Israel's strange God, the one to whom God tells secret things, unknowable things. Noticing he's caught Hazael's attention, the officer leans in. He tells the king of Israel everything you say, even what you whisper in your bedroom. Chills run down Hazael's spine. He blushes as he reviews the last few things he said in his bedroom. Go and find out where he is, the king commands. I will send someone and capture him. They must rid themselves of this informant. Or perhaps employ his talents for their own purposes. The Aramean scouts soon return to the king with word of Elisha's whereabouts. He's in Dothan, they report. Excellent, says Hazael. And he dispatches a massive force, a statement-making force. Not just ground troops, horses, and chariots, the kind of military machinery only superior armies can wield. More than enough to capture one defenseless prophet. Or so it would seem. Deep within Israelite territory, just 10 miles from the capital of Samaria, Dothan sleeps. Only the light of the moon and stars interrupt the darkness, a darkness that cloaks the approach of hundreds of chariots, thousands of horses, hooves on black soil, like a midnight thunderstorm. Where are Jehoram's perimeter defenses? His network of centuries? He has failed to protect his prophet. The troops encircle the city, Aram wrapping its hands around Dothan's throat while the city slumbers. Maybe that night, Elisha rises in the wee hours, awakened by a feeling and walks out of the house into the night to get some air. Maybe, out in the courtyard, he catches an ominous glimpse of bronze in the moonlight just beyond Dothan's outermost houses. And maybe, looking out beyond the glinting metal and waiting warriors, something else catches his eye. Something unmissable. Maybe Elisha looks to the mountains and smiles.
As the first rays of dawn materialize, a young attendant of Elisha's wakes and heads outside to take care of whatever business is pressing. In the distance, he hears a horse whinny, perhaps, and turns his head in the direction of the sound. Immediately, his eyes grow wide with dread as he looks beyond the streets and houses to see that overnight, Dothan has become an island, surrounded by a seething sea of Aramean warriors and horses and chariots. They know what Elisha's been up to. The young man scrambles inside, wakes Elisha, and exclaims, Oh, master, what are we to do? But Elisha seems unperturbed. Rubbing the sleep from his eyes, he says, Don't be afraid, for those who are with us outnumber those who are with them. The young man surely glances around the house, counting heads. Perhaps Elisha has underestimated this enemy. In an effort to convince his master of the seriousness of the situation, the young man, it seems, leads Elisha out of the house where he can better see what they're up against. But as he watches the prophet survey the army of the Aramaeans, their horses close enough to smell, the young man can't help but notice that Elisha seems still unperturbed. Elisha does, however, begin a prayer. Finally, the attendant gets ready, no doubt, to join the prophet in a plea for Yahweh's help, for God to look upon the plight of their group, the entire city. Yahweh, Elisha begins, please open his eyes and let him see. The young man realizes Elisha is talking about him. He looks up, confused, and Yahweh opens his eyes. Immediately, the young man's gaze is drawn from the edges of the city, higher, to the mountains that encompass Dothan. Mountains covered, mantled, in flaming chariots and horses. From this distance, the enormous army looks like one great single mass, like a giant artist dipped his thumb in light and smeared it across the landscape. If the young man could see closer, who knows, perhaps he can, he would see a storm of color, undulating oranges and blues and reds and yellows, flames that form the sharp edges of chariots and the curving sinews of wild, luminous beasts, their tails and manes waving like flags the color of the golden morning sun. Elisha smiles as he watches his young attendant stand there, mouth agape, the boy imagining, perhaps, the various forms of bloody vengeance those chariots might take on Aram. Elisha then looks back out at this incandescent garrison standing guard over him. The last time he saw something like this, well, leave it to Yahweh to combine sentiment, surprise, and strength. Suddenly, the glinting of the Aramean's bronze chariots seems silly and small. Speaking of the Aramaeans, they, unaware of the force that surrounds them, are now readying themselves for attack. In moments, signal horns blow and men scream. 
But just before the horses charge and the enemy surges into Dothan, Elisha prays to Yahweh. Please, strike this nation with blindness. And so Yahweh strikes them with blindness, according to Elisha's word. But darkness is not really Yahweh's style. So a blinding light it is. In an instant, every warrior in the Aramean army winces, puts his hands to his face to block the brightness of the flash, but it's no use. There is no stifling what's happening. They grope frantically, soldiers shouting to their commanders, commanders shouting to one another, chariot drivers in danger of steering the horses into walls or ditches, men on their knees, swords long forgotten, suddenly plunged into a world of confusion and chaos. Elisha's attendant watches in awe as the Aramean force is paralyzed. And then the young man sees his master venture out toward the troops. Instinctively, perhaps, he reaches out his hand to stop Elisha from confronting an army of thousands on his own. But if he does, he draws it back immediately. Elisha seems to know what he's doing. Once he's within a stone's throw of the soldiers scrabbling around on the ground, Elisha calls out to them, This is not the way. In fact, this is not even the right city. Follow me, and I will take you to the man you're looking for, says the man the Arameans are looking for. Elisha then leads the entire legion south toward Samaria. Israel's capital, and, desperate for help, they follow him. This must be a sight. Grown men, dressed in full armor, tiptoeing along the road, trying not to trip. Gleaming chariots, bumping along at a snail's pace led by tentative horses getting little to no input from their reins. This bizarre comedic parade stumbles forward for 10 miles until finally the gates of Samaria are in view. Sentries surely quake at the sight of this mass of enemy soldiers and horses and chariots headed their way until Elisha gestures to them to be calm and not to sound the alarm. The prophet leads the army through the gate while Israelite troops, there are multitudes of them on hand here in the capital, silently follow the Arameans into the middle of the city. Then, once all the enemy forces have been corralled within the walls, Elisha prays, Yahweh, open these men's eyes and let them see. So Yahweh opens their eyes according to Elisha's word. They blink, rub their eyes, look around, and one by one, the soldiers' faces are painted in shades of realization. They are in the Israelite capital of Samaria. They are surrounded, powerless, and there before them stands the prophet Elisha, the one they'd come to capture, the one who didn't stand a chance Somehow, he's captured them. They didn't stand a chance. King Jehoram is, of course, ecstatic. 
practically foaming at the mouth, he approaches Elisha and asks, Should I kill them? Should I kill them, my father? His troops stand ready to pounce on the trembling Arameans, licking their chops, anticipating the slaughter. But then Elisha turns to King Jehoram and says, No, do not kill them. The king's face falls, surely, as the prophet continues, Do you kill those you've captured with your sword or bow? Well, no. And point taken, Jehoram hasn't even captured these people with his sword or with the bows of his army. Well, if not kill them, then what? Why else would Yahweh have brought them here? But before Jehoram can ask the question, Elisha answers it. Make a feast for them and send them back to their master. In the banquet hall of the palace, wine stewards pour libations freely while servers canvass the room with northern Israel's finest culinary offerings. Eventually, confused looks turn to expressions of gratitude. Whispered warnings give way to laughter, and clutched weapons are laid down. The Aramean warriors feast on steaming loaves of bread, fig cakes, stewed beef, sweet dried dates, clusters of grapes, and bowls of pomegranate seeds, all served to them by the hands of their enemies. And surely, lots of milk and honey. The land, after all, is flowing with it. And how does King Jehoram feel about all this? Is he livid? in disbelief that those who attempted to capture Elisha are now his dinner guests? Or is he delighted by this reversal, aware that when Yahweh directs the nation's affairs, this is exactly the kind of thing that ends up happening? Years ago, Jehoram did tear down the pillar of Baal, the one his father, King Ahab, erected a generation before. Jehoram's faithfulness to Yahweh has not been impeccable, but it seems there are times when he's trying. And this, this will be remembered as one of those times. The time Elisha brought him the most elite forces Israel's enemy had to offer, overwhelmed, vulnerable, gift-wrapped almost, and told him Yahweh wanted him to feed them, give them a drink and send them home. Enough fighting. More love. Eventually, the Arameans, and the Israelites for that matter, will choose paths different than this one. Darker than this one. But for now, Elisha has a partner in his unconventional work. Several, in fact. Men and women chopping vegetables, kneading dough, pouring olive oil, serving a feast to these foreigners. These Gentiles sitting at Hebrew tables, feasting on bread and fruit of the vine, their eyes only now adjusting to the light. They should be dead, but they aren't. They were blind, but now they see.
Years from now, Israel's King Jehoash, the third monarch to reign since Jehoram, will come to Elisha's side as the aged, ailing prophet lies on his deathbed, wrapped in his old master's mantle. The king will kneel beside the spokesman of Yahweh, a man who led a war against the wayward Jews' idolatry and disobedience, who fought for them at every turn, standing against the forces of evil and chaos. The king will shed tears, and as he weeps, he'll cry out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel which surely will bring a smile to Yahweh's face as he remembers the day he showed Elisha a chariot of fire in the sky and the day he showed Elisha a host of flaming chariots in the mountains around Dothan. And as he thinks of the moment, it will be so soon when Elisha, the fiery prophet, will be reunited with his fiery mentor and friend enjoying an easy air of familiarity. Nothing unspoken. Nothing unseen. Justin here. I hope you enjoyed the story of the charioteer, the blind men, and the surprise party. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow this show on Instagram. Just search Holy Ghost Stories. And if you'd like behind-the-scenes info about these episodes and stuff around the internet I think is cool and glimpses of my family's travels, uh, we're in a season where we're slowly moving around the world. As of this recording, our next stop is Belfast. You can sign up for the latest. It's an email I send twice a month. Uh, You can find a link in the show notes. Finally, thanks to all of you who support Holy Ghost Stories on Patreon. That's how I partner with listeners to make this show happen. A very warm welcome to those of you who are new patrons. It's so good to have you in the club. And a big shout out to the heavy lifters on Patreon, the Tours: Scott and Susan, Ken and Patty, Luke and Haley, Mindy, Maddie, Eric and Jody, Rick, John, April, Sarah, Ricky, Brandy, Steve, Kimmy, Liz, Stevens, Terry, Jack, Nellen, Jamie H., Bill and Trina, Stephen, Jessica, Ken, Alyssa, Sloan, and Jamie M. I'm so grateful. Until next time.